This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. Hey folks, this is Sam Carter, your host here at the River Radius. We launched our giveaway of the Downriver Clear Creek Cataraft Package last week, and the giveaway is still open. You can enter by going to our website, www.theriverradius.com. There, go to the giveaway page and follow the steps. The River Radius, along with Downriver Equipment, is giving away this Downriver Clear Creek Cataraft Package. This is a full build, a pair of 12-foot high-side Nimbus Cataraft tubes, a Downriver Clear Creek frame, a set of three eight-and-a-half-foot Sawyer Polecat oars, and enough straps to put it all together. Personally, I have this same boat. It is an amazing whitewater craft. This giveaway will run until April 10 of 2023. You can see this boat in person at the end of March at Raftopia in Denver at Downriver Equipment's huge spring sales event. I'll be there at Raftopia as the MC on March 31 and April 1. Come see the boat. Come say hey. Go to the River Radius website, www.theriverradius.com, and follow the entry steps. Now, let's get into this episode all about the details of lightning and what to do when you are in a lightning storm on the river. This episode comes to you from our contributing host, Samara Rosen. Samara built this episode about how to understand lightning because of her own river lightning experience. Here is Samara's episode, The Shocking Details of River Lightning. I think the most important thing is that lightning is a hazard that you can't avoid in the backcountry, but you can definitely mitigate the risk, just like avalanches, just like rattlesnakes, and just like crazy people, you can like manage these risks. And at the end of the day, everyone will be happy if you were smart about how you did this. And we found that there are a few things that we think will help avoid 50% of the lightning fatalities in the United States. River trips by nature are subject to the natural elements. There's something both ethereal and humbling when we're exposed to elements beyond our control. When it comes to lightning, lightning has a reputation for eliciting both profound awe and fear. I'm sure many of you have encountered lightning on a river trip. What did you do? What were the guidelines you were operating by? Were the others on the same page? How did you know when you were safe? As the spring and summer river seasons warm up, I want to know how to best manage lightning risks on the river. This episode comes to you from a particular moment I had in the pouring rain lightning booming in every direction, huddled under a paddleboard with that question of, what now? To best tell the story, I've invited the birthday girl herself, Laura Harris, to bring you into the uncertainty of our river trip gone wrong. So my name is Laura Harris. It was mid-August on a Sunday. It was my birthday. And what better way to spend the day than do a river trip on the Colorado? We had a couple floaties, paddleboards, My roommate and I did check the weather and it said there was perhaps a 30% chance of rain by about 3 p.m. But, you know, we said it's a birthday. 30% in Moab is pretty unlikely. And we just decided to send it. So, of course, even though we thought about the small chance of rain later in the afternoon, the whole putting in and setup time always takes a little bit longer. We didn't actually get into the river until probably noon or 1 p.m. And pretty quickly, we started noticing these very ominous clouds, very dark clouds coming from the LaSalle's in the distance. And so 
we just kept trudging on as we could. And at first the storm was coming from river left. Pretty quickly, it was just enveloping us. I remember seeing lightning to the left of us and to the right of us and kind of right in front of us. And from what I remember, there was just thunder happening all the time. So it was honestly really hard to use that as a gauge, which made me think that we're definitely in the eye of the storm and this lightning is very close. The tricky part was that because it was a larger group, I was in the front of the pack and I also had a group of friends pretty far downstream, um, so we couldn't actually see them. That was also another factor of, okay, what do we do when we're split half and half and how are we both going to attack this situation? My group thought it was going to be best to get off of our crafts and head to a sandbar with some rocks and tamarisk. We just kind of hid in the tamarisk for about an hour and we never saw our group pass us on the river, so we assumed that they did the same. You know, it was interesting. There were kind of some mixed reviews on what our next steps would be. I didn't necessarily think getting back on the river was maybe the smartest idea, but I also weirdly wasn't too concerned about getting struck by lightning, which maybe I should have been. But knowing that we were in the riverbed at a lower point eased my fears a little bit just because I felt like if it were to strike a lot closer, it would probably be on the sides of the river. But there were other folks who were pretty nervous. And it was still pouring rain and there still was threat of lightning. You know, we were still seeing strikes. It's also worth noting that we knew that we were actually very close to our takeout. That was another consideration for me is, do we sit on the shore for an hour plus and evade the lightning? Or would it just be better to go through the water at that point and just safely get to our cars at the takeout? I just have no idea how lightning... I don't know if it's attracted to water or anything like that. So I think that was my biggest question mark at the time. This episode begins with those hard questions. What do you do when you're in the middle of a storm? How do you mitigate the risks of lightning? And at what point should you be concerned? Lightning is often perceived as something that couldn't happen to us. You know, it's like the chance of being struck by lightning. But our ability to assess risk is limited by our knowledge of lightning itself. Laura's birthday float ultimately made it back safely, and the need for information about lightning inspired this episode, especially for those times when you can't Google what to do in a lightning storm. This episode focuses on how lightning can hurt us and a four-part framework that we can use to minimize the chances of that happening. In order to do this, we'll begin with a deep dive on what lightning actually is and how it works. We have two experts, both of whom are named John. John Vells is a professor of physics at the University of Utah. In preparing for this episode on lightning, I read through dozens of academic papers on what is known and not known about the nature of lightning. This is where I first glimpsed the work of John Bells. Our second expert in this episode is John Gookin, a co-author of one of the only books on lightning risk management. He worked with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, commonly referred to as NOAA, and with Knowles as their curriculum and research manager specializing in lightning. Knowles stands for the National Outdoor Leadership School and is a nonprofit in outdoor education. He's currently a high school teacher in Wyoming. John Bells will kick off the episode with a brief note on his methodology, 
what lightning is, and what lightning looks like when we capture it on a high-speed camera. Please welcome John Bells. My name is John Bells. I'm a uh, professor of physics at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Most of my career, I've been uh, working on experimental particle physics, and that includes uh, particles that are hitting the Earth from, from space called cosmic rays. But as a uh, outgrowth of that, I uh, got interested in uh, lightning because it turns out that lightning produces some very energetic particles called gamma rays. And, uh, and, and we've been learning a lot about the gamma rays that lightning produces out in Utah's West Desert. Let's just start with the basics. On the broadest definition, can you summarize what lightning is? An example that I think most people are, have some familiarity with is you're walking in a in a room with a with a with a carpet and maybe dragging your feet a little bit, and you touch a doorknob and you get a little a little shock in your finger. These are the same phenomenon that lightning is. Lightning is that little spark between your finger and the doorknob multiplied by a factor of a of a hundred thousand or a million. So what static electricity is? Maybe you remember from science class, atoms have. Uh, positive uh, charges, and then they have negative charges. What happens in static electricity is you're separating those positive and negative charges. So for example, when I walk across the carpet, I'm scraping some of the negative charges off of the atoms and onto my body. And as a result, my body is becoming negatively charged. Now, maybe you remember opposite charges attract so those electrons that you've that you've scraped off of the atoms and that are that are now on your body, they want to find their way back to the positive charges. And what the doorknob is is a path for the uh, charges on your body to rejoin the positive charges. The strength of that opposites attracting is is so much that it can actually cause the air between your finger and the and the doorknob to break down. And that's what we recognize as a spark. So then, what lightning is. You're separating positive and negative charges between different parts in the cloud. You, you know the kind of clouds that produce lightning. You've seen these billowing cumulonimbus clouds. And what happens is you have an air current that's flowing upward through these thunderclouds. As they're moving upwards, they're bringing little drop, droplets of moisture and ice crystals, and they're carrying them up. The ice crystals grow as they fuse with other uh, ice crystals until the upflowing uh, air current isn't enough to support them anymore. And then, they go then they're going to fall down. So we've got heavy ice crystals that are, that are falling down, small ice crystals and water droplets that are, that are moving up. And it's the action of them rubbing against one another, which is similar to the action of your foot rubbing on the carpet and separating the the positive and negative electric charges. So you develop positively charged and negatively charged regions of clouds. These charge regions want to want, want, want to reconnect with each other, and that's the phenomenon we experience as lightning. The majority of lightning, about two-thirds or so, happens uh, intra-cloud. So lightning is, is the discharge of static electricity. I've heard about different anatomy of lightning. Like I, I've seen the word leader in various lightning literature, are the different parts of lightning that are important to know about? Right, right. You know, lightning happens fast, right? What we perceive as just a, a flash of, uh, of blinding uh, bright light, followed you know, usually by a sound a few seconds later. There's a lot of a lot of substructure to that flash that we that we don't see. 
the flash happens in millisecond type time scale. But if we attach a high speed camera and record uh, high speed videos of, of, of lightning, we can see some of this uh, substructure happening. Okay, so what leaders are is lightning trying to find a path to ground. We, you know, we talked about the charge builds up, the air starts to break down and, and, allow, and allow current to flow. Uh, the first stage is these kind of slow moving fingers <laughs> of, uh, of, of charge buildup that are trying to find a path to the ground. What happens is the charge will advance a little bit and then create a little bit of a conducting channel that more charge can come in behind it. And then charge will build up at the tip of that little finger and the finger will uh, advance another, another few meters through space. So you've got these little tiny steps since this is audio, I'll, I'll try to give a, a sound effect. So lightning is these little breakdowns, right? Each little is a uh, lightning leader progressing through the, the atmosphere. Eventually, it's going to contact the ground. When the lightning leader has gotten long enough that it contacts the ground, now, aha, I've got a path that goes all the way from this positively charged or negatively charged region in the, in, in the cloud to make it to the ground. Okay, and then a large uh, current is going to flow. The bright flash that you that you typically see with your eye is is going to happen, and uh, and we'll get the loud boom. This episode is sponsored by two excellent organizations: Downriver Equipment Company and American Whitewater. First, I'll tell you about American Whitewater. American Whitewater does project work that deeply impacts our community of river enthusiasts. For example. Through their Colorado Stewardship Program, they are committed to protecting and restoring the Dolores River and its canyons. The Dolores River is a multi-day rafting paradise. American Whitewater is ensuring dam releases are well communicated with the public while fighting for lasting protections for the whole landscape. American Whitewater will be at Raftopia in Denver on March 31 and April 1. Swing by and say hi, learn about their work, and become a member. I am a member of American Whitewater, and the River Radius is a partner with American Whitewater. You can find American Whitewater online at www.americanwhitewater.org. Our second sponsor today is Downriver Equipment. Downriver Equipment is a river gear shop based in the Denver, Colorado area. Downriver is owned by passionate river runners. Their team is made up of experienced and knowledgeable boaters that work hard to make sure you have the gear that best fits your river needs. Downriver's mission is to cultivate a lifetime of unforgettable outdoor experiences for river runners. They do this by providing industry-leading rafting equipment, handcrafted gear, and by connecting the river community through education, conservation, and inclusivity. You can visit Downriver in person or shop their sweet gear online at www.downriverequip.com. In our interview, John Bells walked me through a PowerPoint presentation that he gives to undergraduate students about his research. We were able to record the audio as he gives a play-by-play of lightning that was captured on a high-speed camera. This is a, a lightning strike that's recorded in Millard County, Utah. What you're seeing here, these are leaders. Relatively slow-moving, uh, moving to ground. And then you see the bright flash. It looks kind of like a small white dot appearing in the distance, and then the dot gets brighter. Here's the finger that's, you know, the leader, the leader finger that's trying to find a way to get to the ground. 
And it's almost leaving a trail, like a smoke line. It is, it is definitely leaving a trail. And then when that leader comes into contact with the ground, then you see bright flash. In fact, the flash is so bright that it kind of overwhelms the camera for a, a second. This entire video is happening in about 20 thousandths of a second, about two one hundredths of a second. So you need a you need a high speed camera or some some radio detectors to see this substructure. Would you summarize some of the methods used? People have been studying lightning from looking at it optically. High speed video cameras are a way to, to to look at lightning and see that there's more structure than just the single bright flash. We also have a, a, a number of uh, radio frequency uh, devices that we that we deploy out in the uh, in, in, in the desert that are recording information from uh, the lightning. You know, both the visible light and and radio frequency light are both used to study lightning. And gamma radiation is kind of a you know fairly recent additional probe that we have on what's happening inside the lightning. Would you talk about why lightning is so hard to study? Well, for sure, like anything, uh, the closer you're able to get to the phenomenon you're you're looking at, the better you're going to be able to to see it. And the more danger you're in. And the more danger, maybe. One, one, one of the difficulties is that any device that can measure the electric fields could also be a seed to start a, a lightning breakdown itself. John, I want to thank you for giving us your time and expertise. This, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. And you know, professors like to talk about their research. <laughs> understanding what lightning is sets the stage to understanding how lightning can hurt us and what we can do to minimize our chances of injury. Our second John on today's podcast is John Gukin. You will hear John mention the Wilderness Risk Management Conference, also known as WRMC as well as NOLS, which stands for the National Outdoor Leadership School. In this next section, John Guggen will contextualize where his information comes from and break down the common types of lightning injuries. My name is John Guggen. I teach high school now, but I had a career at Knowles as the curriculum and research manager. I have a PhD in education. I've uh, taught a lot of outdoor stuff. And um, luckily for me, Knowles let me focus on lightning risk management back around the year 2000 because we invited a speaker to the Wilderness Risk Managers Conference and the speaker just said, well, lightning's capricious, like watch out. And it's like, well, thanks. <laughs> and uh, and so I I talked to the one of the world leading experts and said, how can I find someone who knows about this? He said, nobody knows about that. But so-and-so knows this aspect, so-and-so knows that aspect. And uh, if you told them what you're doing, I bet they would all cooperate with you. And so your work experience has led to you co-authoring a book. Would you tell us a little bit about the book, where the information came from, some of the research methods? So originally I started back around 2000. All those scientists each said to me that they would only collaborate with me if I published whatever I came up with. And they specifically said at the International Lightning Meteorology Conference, which happens every couple of years around the world. And so I agreed to do that. 
you know, it took me uh, two years to kind of pull all this together. And of the top 10 lightning scientists in the world, five of them were on my team. These folks are serious scientists who write the college textbooks on things like lightning physics. And they're used to measuring things and having definitive answers with a lot of data. It was hard for them to do this kind of fuzzy thing about, well, how do you just increase your chances of being a little bit safer? Like this guy, Ron Holly worked for the Weather Service, and he had a database with 30,000 lightning injuries in it. He knows from this serious expertise that most important thing is to get in a house or a metal top vehicle, and then you won't be part of the data. And it was really hard for him to split hairs about things like getting on a foam pad. He was like, are you kidding me? Just get in a house. It's like, well, we're not near a house. You know, we're near like this and that. And he goes, well, none of those are going to be a guarantee. And it's like, well, I understand that, but it's just, it's just like avalanche safety. You need to figure out the safer options, not the safe option. The safe option is to stay home. It sounds like the methodology used was incredibly intentional, using top researchers, most up-to-date methods, extensive databases. Are there other ways of gathering information that we should know as far as the credibility of where this information is coming from? We mostly use this Delphi process where you go through layers of, hey, here are the big questions. Let's gather information, try to find whether there are databases about this, and if not, get expert opinions from people who do this a lot and just kind of keep moving forward in layers. There were quite a few times when one of these really sharp people would go, well, I don't know about lightning coming down the face like that. And I would go, well, you know who told me that was your colleague, so-and-so. Do me a favor, talk to him about it. I'm the writer here. You guys are the physicists. So that eventually worked well. And I think it also helped that I was very humble about it. There were times when a couple of them said, I think this is nuts. Like, why are we even doing this? And I put right in this paper that we published that some scientists think we're nuts for even doing this. And then they were okay with it. So I thought I'd be done in like a month or two. 12 years later, you know, we had a National Weather Service brochure on the topic. There are different ways that lightning can hurt us. Um, that noise is the NOAA brochure that we made. We very carefully put some things in order here and people who are smarter than me knew what order to, to put them in. In terms of uh, how lightning hurts us, the electricity is pretty key because the electricity can kind of mess up our body because everything in our body is triggered in our nerves through electrical current and it's tiny little currents. And so when you zap it with a gazillion volts, it messes things up. So just the electricity can kill us. But also that electricity heats things up and it heats things up so fast that it can cause trauma from the explosion. So I was a Marine and this is very similar in terms of injury and mortality radius to a high explosive hand grenade going off. And so it tends to, when it hits the ground, kill people out to five or 10 meters and injure people out to about 50 meters. And it can like snag some people really far away, just kind of randomly, but not very often. And so there's this like crazy explosion. And so a lot of lightning injury victims have blunt trauma. They have like broken bones and some of them get blasted and thrown through the air. So there's the electricity, there's the trauma. It also heats things up and can burn people. You know, there's a dilemma of if a person is wet, 
the wetness helps carry the electrical current over their skin instead of through their body. B.F. Skinner said you can't electrocute a wet rat because he was like literally testing rats with like electrical current and uh, he had to make sure they were dry to do his stuff. Well, that was the deal with people too. But then the, uh, the water on your body, like from sweat or the river or whatever, explodes into steam and burns you and blasts all of your clothes off your body. And so these people are just like naked with like steam burns on them. And I think the embarrassment wouldn't be your biggest problem. If you can't electrocute somebody that's wet, does that mean that it's safer to be wet because you would rather have steam burns than die? <laughs> when I brought this up, people thought it was pretty funny that I wanted to know that. And I think we used to tell people, don't be wet. And now we're saying, don't worry about it. it, it you know, you got bigger problems than that. Like we used to also tell people, don't wear a belt with a metal buckle because if you get struck by lightning, it might like brand you. And it's like, that is not the biggest problem of someone who gets that much electricity over their body. Yeah. If, if you see a storm coming, put yourself in a place where you wouldn't get struck in the first place. Yeah. So the key things there are um, the electricity, the explosion causing trauma, um, the heat causing burns, and the sound the sound of the explosion uh, damaging people. I know it's unlikely, but thinking about triage with lightning victims, what are the priorities? Okay, so in normal triage at like a plane crash, you go to the people who are um, moving around first, thinking, well, maybe I can save them. And it's the opposite with lightning. The triage, you go to the people who aren't moving first, because this huge electrical charge often stops your triggers for breathing and possibly your heart. Those people need CPR real quick. The people who are writhing around complaining about it, they're getting a better deal than those other people. Uh, people who aren't moving at all, you need to check them first and just go through your normal ABCs. And there have been a fair amount of people who have electrical problems like this, who a little bit of CPR like jump starts them and brings them back. And with all CPR, don't get your hopes up, but I bet you'll be happier later if you did everything you could at that moment. Downriver Equipment is a rafting gear shop that manufactures custom raft frames and other river gear like straps, drop bags, rig bags, and pumps. Every product with a Downriver label is built in-house in Denver, Colorado, and sourced from materials made in the United States. Downriver also sells gear from other great brands in their shop for you to purchase and tailor for your river setup. They offer numerous brands of cat boats and rafts, paddles and oars from the best builders, dry bags, splash gear, and PFDs, kitchen gear, stoves, tables, coolers, water jugs, tents, and sleeping bags. Downriver Equipment is based in Denver, Colorado, and if you can't get to their shop in person, you can get online and get that same sweet gear ready to be shipped to you at www.downriverequip.com. Com. American Whitewater's river conservation efforts have helped to ensure that the wild and scenic values of the Upper Colorado River are protected, that access fits the levels of use on the Upper Colorado, and that flows are sufficient for recreation. If you are lucky enough to recreate on the Upper Colorado River, you have been impacted by decades of work from American Whitewater. Gorefest celebrates this work on the Upper Colorado River, and American Whitewater is the host of Gorefest. 
Learn more about the Upper Colorado and all their projects at www.americanwhitewater.org. American Whitewater will be at Raftopia in Denver on March 31 and April 1. Come check them out, learn about their work, become a member. I am a member of American Whitewater, and the River Radius is a partner with American Whitewater. You're about to hear a four-part framework on how to reduce lightning risk in the backcountry. We'll break down each consideration and its application to river safety, and we'll revisit the framework throughout this episode to make it easy to remember. If you were to summarize a framework, like lightning safety, best practices, a mantra, something really easy to remember, what advice would you give? I think the most important thing is that lightning is a hazard that you can't avoid in the backcountry. But you can definitely mitigate the risk, just like avalanches, just like rattlesnakes, just like scorpions, and just like crazy people. You can like manage these risks. And at the end of the day, everyone will be happy if you were smart about how you did this. And we found that there are a few things that we think will help avoid 50% of the lightning fatalities in the United States. And so there's still going to be some random ones where like, if you're outdoors, like stuff's going to happen, but we can avoid like about half of them. If you just time your visits to high risk areas and do it at low risk times, that's number one, just finding safer terrain. If you hear thunder, avoiding trees and lawn conductors, once lightning gets close. And then as a last resort, get in the lightning position. And remember there are scientists who think I'm crazy telling you that this even matters. But what else are you going to do? So that, that's pretty much it. The first thing is to time your visit to high-risk areas with local weather patterns. That is key. And uh, all these people ask, well, if I'm about to summit the mountain and it starts to lightning, what do I do? It's like, man, you blew it an hour ago. Don't ask me what to do now. It's like, it's too late, man. I can't fix that. The main thing is to time your visits to high-risk areas and don't go there at high-risk times. There seem to be a lot of strategies to plan ahead and avoid putting ourselves in lightning-prone conditions. What are some of the tools out there that guides or river users could use to see if there are lightning danger in their forecast? If I was going to do a river trip, I would just see what the weather pattern's doing. I would look at climatology for that area, and I might even call the river rangers and just say, hey, what's the deal with thunderstorms? You know, and that doesn't mean that I'm just talking to like the front desk person who answers the telephone. I really want to talk to a river ranger, someone who goes out there because they'll have lived this experience. It's different in different places. Like, like in mountaineering in the Wind River Range, the thunderstorms tend to come in like three to five in the afternoon. The Sierras in California, it's more like one in the afternoon. You need to like get on the peak and off earlier in the Sierras than you do in Wyoming. So I would start with some homework like that. And so if you see something like precipitation in the weather forecast, how do you know if it'll have an electric component? So the hotter it is, the more it happens. And if you get online and look at a lightning strike density map for the United States, the warmer states have 100 times as much lightning as the cooler states. And if you look worldwide down in South America and um, Central Africa, like near the equator, they get like a thousand times as much as we get here in the Intermountain West. And so the hotter it is, the more lightning there's going to be. 
the storms that produce lightning need clouds that are at least seven miles tall. When you're on your boat, it's pretty hard to stick your thumb up and go, oh, I think that one's six miles, we're good. But what you could do is just see how dark the bottom of that cloud is. The darker the cloud is, the more water and ice there is between the sun and you. And it's the ice falling through the rising water in that cloud over at least a seven mile span that is developing this static electricity that causes the lightning. I learned a new term from your book, now casting. <laughs> if you are in a situation where, you know, you're already out and a storm is coming in, how do you recognize a thundercloud? If you read the book, and I don't make a nickel off this book, it was a labor of love. But if you can see that they're anvil shaped, that's because there's super high winds aloft, kind of blowing the top off. And then there's uh, stuff going on with how the air's rising up the center and down the outsides and kind of flowing, circulating around that makes them more anvil shaped. And if the skies are getting really dark, you need to be in a safe place. Remember, we're talking, we're usually talking daily build up here because it's like summer when we go rafting and, you know, it's nice, but it's hot enough to support daily build up. And daily build up is when the sun heats the earth up, so it starts heating it up every morning. And as it heats it up, it bakes moisture out of things and brings it up into the atmosphere. And as the day warms up, more and more of this builds up up in the air. And eventually, you can get enough accumulation that you could support a thunderstorm. Now, in the Intermountain West, we get this thing called forcing. And that's where the cloud rises up and over something, like onto the Colorado Plateau. And when it rises it cools off. And so there's a lot of lightning right where these clouds come up over the mountains that can trigger it through that forcing. So that makes certain places much more prone to lightning strike density than others. And it's not where did the storm come from, it's which way is the wind blowing as it hits that area. Now casting is very much like what is the conditions directly in front of you and wind yes. is something you can observe Cumulonimbus clouds are something you can observe. Some watches have barometric pressure. And if you see the pressure dropping, that's a pretty good sign that there's this air mass that's sucking things off of the ground, creating the low pressure where you are. The important thing is if your watch can show that it's changing. So whatever it is, if it's dropping, that's what counts. You got a normal daily cycle. And if you see two days of that cycle and then somewhere in it, all of a sudden it's dropping, not in sync with that cycle. It's like, oh, some low pressure is blowing in here. Usually you see a cloud too. I'm thinking about, like, I know that a lot of Garmin watches have a barometer on them. And so it's important to know your baseline conditions before the storm hits. Yeah. And going back to now casting, when do you know when you're in danger? Okay, so there are a bunch of signs. If you and I were on the river, if I saw any clouds at all, I'd just like take note, oh, there are some clouds. And if an hour or two later, there were more clouds or thicker clouds, like darker clouds or lower clouds, I'd think, wow, there's a lot of moisture in these clouds. And I'd be thinking to myself, huh, the trend is they're getting thicker and lower. If I see they're like really thick and dark, it's like, wow, man, something's going on here. You know, and maybe it's lightning, maybe it's just like cold rain coming in, but I would take notice. I don't usually have a barometer with me I'm usually just kind of checking things out. A key thing is if the wind is shifting. 
sometimes there's a weather cell moving around. And so where I live here in Wyoming, if the wind shifts to the north, it's probably going to rain on me, but it's because of where I live relative to these mountains here. It, you know, maybe along a certain river, there's a pattern like that, where if the wind shifts in a certain way, you need to be a little more careful. And then if we heard any sort of rumble or saw any sort of flash, that would be a cue that there's lightning happening somewhere. You can hear lightning, you know, maybe 10 miles away if it's not real windy where you are. And if it is real windy where you are, we've had people in the mountains who just like weren't hearing the lightning because it was so darn windy as they're coming off the mountain and someone got struck and died without ever having heard some lightning. Just hearing it doesn't work by itself, but hearing it sure is a clue that it's happening. If you can see it and you're sure that you see lightning striking somewhere and then timed how long until you hear it, the light is pretty much instantaneous, but the sound travels about one mile every five seconds, or if you like kilometers, a kilometer every three seconds. And so you can time how far away the front of that storm is if it's coming towards you. If you can see clearly, you could use this ranging thing. A lot of uh, the important scientists don't like me even telling people that because they're afraid that they're going to mix up when they're trying to arrange, they might mix up which flash goes with which sound. So if you can see this clearly, you can figure it out. If it's not windy where you are, if it's closer to you, it's louder. That's how you know that you are in danger. So you take whatever precautions you need, and we'll go into that in just a minute. But how do you know when the storm is over, the danger has passed? Well, we've got the 30-30 rule. So if you haven't heard any thunder and it's calm enough that you would have heard it, if it was there, then you should be kind of all clear. According to the National Weather Service, the 30-30 rule is as follows. If there's less than 30 seconds between when you see lightning and when you hear thunder, the storm is close enough to be dangerous and you should seek shelter. You should wait at least 30 minutes after seeing a flash before leaving shelter. We just discussed the first part of our framework, which is to time your visits to high-risk areas with local weather patterns. Next, we'll discuss part two and part three. Find safer terrain if you hear thunder and avoid trees and long conductors once lightning gets close. In this next section, John Gukin will refer back to his Backcountry Lightning Risk Management brochure. You can find a link to the brochure in the show notes. For reference, the image he describes depicts a scale of risk from 0 to 10, 10 being as safe as possible. The image is of a thundercloud over a mountain that flows downwards towards a forest of evenly tall trees, isolated large trees, wide open areas, a gully, and an exposed lake. Each of them have their associated risks, and John will walk us through them. The second one is to find safer terrain if you hear thunder. And then the third one is to avoid trees and long conductors once lightning gets close. Something that we've had some sneak previews is around topography and relative height. So I have the brochure right here. You know, this went through the peer review process. And the important thing on this is that we put a van and a house in there. And those are a 10 on the safety scale. And then over all the outdoor stuff goes from zero to three. So the best you can get in the outdoors is about, let's call it 30% as safe as you would be in a modern building. 
till about 10 years ago, I told people, well, if you're at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, I mean, it almost never hits there. So like stay in the boat and have fun, get some good pictures of the lightning. Well, then someone got struck there. If you're in wilderness, you just can't avoid the lightning risk. But among those areas, some of them are much more dangerous than others. Zero along the river would be under that one lone tree on a wide open river um, right at the edge of the water. Because they're, in terms of the soil, grounding their roots in um, geometry of just how things zigzag down into a canyon, those things just tend to get hit a lot. That'd be a really horrible place to be. And then if there's more higher terrain around you, there's a lesser chance that it can get down to where you are. You're much safer at the bottom of a canyon. And the narrower it is, the less likely it is that lightning that's zigzagging back and forth down the canyon is going to make it all the way to the bottom. Any tall tree in the forest is much more dangerous than just even size trees. Like even size trees, um, it's just randomly going to hit somewhere in there. At least it's random. Whereas if you're under the one tallest tree around, you're like under the primary target. So you want to avoid tall trees, you want to avoid high exposed ground, and you want to be more in gullies than ridges, just in terms of where lightning tends to hit. Taking it a step further, I'm picturing a river trip, commercial trips, private trips, really any water user where we've got the put-in ramp, the river stretches where there's varying levels of protection with canyons. Maybe it's an overnight and so there are some beaches and then we have our takeout. Where are the highest and lowest risks in your average trip? When you're at the put-in or takeout, you probably have vans that you could go like hang out in. That gives you a truly safe option. There have been people struck in vehicles. They don't necessarily have a good day, but they don't die. And so it'd be pretty hard to explain why you were hanging out at the put-in during a thunderstorm and not in the van and you could like do the safety brief or something like that. At the put-in and take-out, you have that option. And when it's there, it's going to be pretty hard to explain to your client's family why you didn't do that. And remember, your client has no problem taking lots of risks. But if they perish on your trip, I bet their family isn't so open about what risks they should have been allowed to take. At the put-in and take-out, like just get in the van and hang out. Now, along the way, you know, as soon as you decide to launch everything changes because it's pretty hard to go back off river. And so it's important to know your conditions. You have to have a matrix in your mind of all these different factors and see if any of them are like severe. So just how wide open that canyon is, is part of it. How severe the storm is, is part of it. Whether you have an easy access or egress from getting off the water, now, if just because you have a red light for like no way to get off the water doesn't mean that on a clear day, you shouldn't go through that part of the river. If you have like a bunch of yellow lights and a red light, you should like seriously think about avoiding that situation. And if you have a bunch of red lights, you're crazy. Like, what the hell are you doing? You shouldn't be on the water that day. The information that I've always been given is if there's a storm coming, get out of the water. Or if you're on a boat, get off the water. Is there merit to that? I think that I would almost always get off the water if I thought that that big black cloud was going to come over top of us because there are just safer places to be. Just pull up on shore and just get back some and just hang out for a while and play cards or something or just like make camp here. 
just looping back. So you had said that a ground strike can travel through land uh, five to 10 meters. Are there any studies on how far lightning could move through freshwater? That's a good question. And and I would say that lightning is still dangerous out to about 50 meters on the ground. The case studies have been people like swimming in the ocean and that water is salty. So it conducts electricity much better than in a river. The Green River sometimes looks kind of thick. <laughs> Maybe that conducts electricity better than, say, the Selway. But in general, freshwater doesn't conduct as well. I'm kind of chasing a number. So if lightning were to strike the ocean, how far does ocean water conduct electricity? I think it's been uh, measured out to 600 feet. And so topographical concerns are one consideration yes. in deciding whether or not to go through an area are there other considerations? How competent your team is. If they can like get off the water lickety split like the seals, then uh, that's a different factor. But if you got people who just learning how to spell raft, you better be more conservative. This is a, a bit of a tangent, but I'm thinking about the metal on river trips, like the metal frame on a raft or metal tables that you might cook on. Is it dangerous to be around those things? So those do conduct electricity, but they're short. The problem would be if you're near a barbed wire fence. And if you just get on the internet and search for lightning dead horse or lightning dead cow, you're going to see multiple animals that are killed in there. They're almost always next to a fence. They might be under a tree, but they're usually next to a fence. And that fence is going to have wooden fence posts, not metal fence posts. And it's because the wooden fence posts are good insulators. And so lightning strikes the fence really far away. And since they're insulated, it goes really far down that fence. And cows and horses often kind of pile up against a fence during a storm. And so you see like big groups of them. That's because those are like mile long conductors. Your folding table for the raft, you know, that's so short. It's, it's not that big of a deal. It kind of matters at the micro level, but in the big picture of things, I wouldn't worry about it. So the, the main thing is to time your visits to high-risk areas and don't go there at high-risk times. The second one is to find safer terrain if you hear thunder. And then the third one is to avoid trees and long conductors once lightning gets close. If you do get off the river, just avoid those big cottonwoods along the riverbank. And then the last one is to get in the lightning position if lightning is striking nearby and you can't get to a safer place. What is the lightning position? The first thing you need to do is put your feet together. When lightning strikes, about half the people who die, die from ground current. And ground current is where lightning strikes nearby and then it dissipates. And having a million volts on your body isn't that big of a deal unless your feet are spread so far apart that one foot has a million volts and the other has only 900,000 volts. And now there's a 100,000 volt difference of potential between one foot and the other. And it's going to have 100,000 volts going in one leg, through your torso and down the other leg. The most important part of the lightning position is put your feet together. You can sit down if you just kind of ball up. I usually just like sit on a foam pad and hang out. Maybe I sit with my legs crisscrossed or something like that. Some scientists think I'm crazy telling people this, but what's it going to hurt? It's not going to hurt to sit on a foam pad. 
And if we look at the one case in the Grand Canyon, there were something like 27 people there. Anyone who was barefoot didn't even remember that there was lightning and people who even had flip-flops remembered everything. A little bit of insulation sure doesn't hurt. The important thing is put your feet together and kind of ball up. That case study in the Grand Canyon really struck me, pun intended, because, and I read this, this is your story. Yeah. It was a guide in the Grand Canyon who has its legs spread. Yeah, he he spread his legs just to to save his back um, so he could like work on the dishes and hang out without like bending over. And just because his legs weren't together, he was the one that ended up. Yeah, and barefoot. Yeah, but what a random thing. I mean, bottom of the Grand Canyon. Yeah. I've also heard mixed things about whether or not you should crouch down. Crouching doesn't hurt, but it's not as important. A long time ago, they called it the lightning crouch because we all assumed everyone got a direct strike and it was less likely to get you if you weren't like standing up tall. That was the idea there. But if you look at the statistics, like it's that's rarely much of an issue compared to other things. The people who are dying are getting it through the ground or side flash because they're right under like a big tree or something like that. And so just to reiterate, the most important thing is keep your feet together so that the electricity is equal between legs yeah. and wear shoes. Yeah, I would be on some sort of insulator personally. I kind of want to do a case study. Okay. I want to tell you about a scenario. Tell us what we should have been thinking, the considerations, the risks, like let's just pick it apart. Yep. Uh, so I was on a private paddleboarding birthday trip, front country, day-long trip. We saw the storm coming in, but we assumed we could out paddle the storm and we began our trip. Moving pretty slowly, uh, we began to see lightning flashing in every direction around us mm-hmm. and thunder sounding like it was coming, like it was coming down directly on top of us. And that's when we decided to get off the water. Our group ended up splitting into two groups because some people had gotten further ahead than others, but both groups independently pulled their boards off the water. Um, My group, we crouched on top of paddle boards at the edge of a tamarisk field, a couple meters away from the river's edge. Mm -hmm. And at some point we put a paddle board on top of our heads as well and sat there. It was probably a couple of hours until we were absolutely sure that the storm had passed. Mm Mm-hmm. And this was, was this like the Moab Daily there? Yep. This was the Moab Daily. I should say that our cars were probably a half an hour from where we pulled off the water. Gotcha. Okay. Rip it apart. <laughs> what should we have done? I don't know. It all works for me. I, I like a paddleboard. It's like big hunk of foam. That's perfect. Now, uh, one important thing is when you have 10 million volts, everything is a conductor. A direct strike isn't going to save you on a paddle board, but hardly anybody dies from a direct strike. Let me get the brochure. So direct strikes was like 5 or 10%. And so almost everything else, those big thick foam paddle boards are going to like be super protective as long as you're not next to some big tree. I don't know. That all sounds fine to me. In anticipating pushback, I would have expected you to say, why did you get on the water? Oh, Well, see, I don't know what the circumstances were like when you decided to launch. 
like, I don't know what the river level was. Like, was your trip just three, four hours? I think it was supposed to be. We ended up moving quite a bit slower Uh than we had anticipated. We had an issue with one of the paddles and we had some beginners on the trip. And so what should have been a quicker trip ended up being slower. It's hard to say. Like we did see storm clouds when we were putting in, Uh but we didn't know if they were lightning, if they were thunderclouds or not. Gotcha. I don't know enough about it to give advice other than it must have felt like a real tease that you were only half an hour from the takeout. It's good you stayed where you were instead of pushing it because you were so close. So you know, there are a lot of social factors that make it look pretty convenient to just like get off the river and go get a beer. And you've mentioned this, the vehicle is a safe place. Yeah. There's that temptation of, you know, oh, we would be a little bit safer if we could get to the vehicles, but we would be exposed and on water for, could be a half an hour in order to get there. We deal with this mountaineering all the time where um, you have to decide, do I have to cross this danger zone to get to a safer place? If you do do that, you want to do it fast. Um, You want to minimize your exposure. If you did decide to bust the move to get to the safety of the vehicle, you want to like come up with a plan and then tell people, I don't care if you sprain your ankle, keep limping and just keep moving. And it just minimizes your time of exposure. Oh, and I see what you're saying. It is so nuanced. You know, it isn't just expertise. It's also attitude. And if there were people there who like, weren't pumped up with a can-do attitude, maybe you're better off just hanging out on the paddle boards. On land? Yeah, yeah. I'm saying that if you didn't trust some of the people to not hold you all back, because you aren't going to like leave them behind, right? <laughs> Hope you make it. Yeah, good luck. Yeah, no, it's all it's all very nuanced, but I appreciate your take on it. Sure. Would you like to give a disclaimer? for any of the information that we've discussed in this episode and how people use it thereafter? Yeah. So a good disclaimer for this is that we've got best practices that we think will help people avoid about half of the lightning fatalities that we see in the outdoors. These are the best practices that we know of based on the data that we have. And so if you want to mitigate the risk, here's some stuff you can do. But if you need to stay safe, you better stay home or at least stay in um modern building with plumbing and wiring or in a metal topped vehicle. Like my plastic top Jeep doesn't count. It has to be metal topped. Is there anything that you would like to share that we haven't gone over yet that you want to make sure that is stated on this episode? People should learn enough about the weather and learn enough about lightning that they can relax and still make responsible choices in the outdoors. You know, the more you work in the outdoors or the more you just hang out in the outdoors, the more you should be a student of these things and read up about the best way to do these things. You know, with all outdoor stuff, whether it's rafting or rock climbing, you should use mentors who have uh, expertise to help you figure out best practices. John, I want to give you a tremendous thank you for making the time to share all of your knowledge and research and labors of love into just making lightning education accessible. Thank you so much. Sure. I need to tell you something. There are these folks in Florida who make lightning strike things. And if uh, viewers are interested, you can look at the University of Florida. What they do is they shoot a rocket with a wire up into it and the wire is like attached to like 
a building or a car and they make lightning hit these things and they have all these sensors. It's pretty wild. A thunderclap of applause goes out to John Bells and John Gugan for their dedication to making lightning safety accessible. Further thanks goes out to Laura and her birthday crew for inspiring this episode. You can find additional resources about lightning in our show notes, as well as videos on our social media. Thank you so much for joining The River Radius. We have two sponsors today. First is American Whitewater. You can find links to their website and social media in the show notes. And American Whitewater will be at Raftopia on March 31 and April 1 in Denver. Our second sponsor today is Downriver Equipment. Downriver will be hosting Raftopia in Denver on March 31st and April 1. Come check out the rad deals and all of the River Gear vendors. I will be the MC at Raftopia. Come say hey. And the giveaway for the Downriver Clear Creek Cataract Package is wide open until April 10th. You can enter at www.theriverradius.com. That link is in the show notes. You can see the boat at Raftopia. Check out all of the lightning videos and links in the show notes. Samara Rosen is our contributing host. Samantha Seiss is our social media manager. Today's music is composed and performed by Gene Reiniger. Be in touch anytime. Hello at theriverradius.com. Thanks so much for joining The River Radius. When you're on your boat, it's pretty hard to stick your thumb up and go, oh, I think that one's six miles. We're good. You know, we said it's a birthday. We just decided to send it. He was like, are you kidding me? Just get in a house. Since this is audio, I'll try to give a, a sound effect. So don't ask me what to do now. Like, it's too late, man. I can't fix that. We just kind of hid in the tamarisk for about an hour. The Green River sometimes looks kind of thick, 